our Lord is for you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your time today. We thank you for bringing us together to share the understanding of the book of Psalms. Help us then to open our minds and our hearts to what the Spirit is telling us through Holy Scripture. Give us the strength and the grace, really, to open our minds and our hearts and to set aside a lot of preconceived notions and wait for your blessings. So we thank you really for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. Today we're taking up the subject of uh, the book of Psalms. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the Old Testament. Um, and I hope that you will see it the same way. The Psalms probably are uh, a misfit in the wisdom books because they cover so many subjects and only a few of them, eight or ten or less, uh, are classified as wisdom psalms. But nevertheless, all of the psalms can bring us a form of spiritual wisdom in one way or another. And I'll get into, a, uh, I think, a rather a prime example uh, of that just a little later. But what I'd like to do is cover the history of the psalms. Uh, because they weren't all written at the same time, like much of the other books of the of the uh, Bible, uh, they were written really over a long period of time. And they were only compiled around the 3rd century B.C. into the form that we have today. And then even then, it's been changed a little bit. Uh, but starting back in the first period of Jewish history, between the time of Abraham and uh, the time of Moses, again, 500 years or roughly, uh, there was no writings whatsoever. So we have no record of what spirituality existed at that time period. There is a lot of stories uh, of Abraham and his family, Isaac and, and Jacob, but most of those are historical stories uh, relative to the building of the Jewish family. As far as worshiping, we have no understanding uh, really of what went on at that time period. Uh, the Jewish faith really begins at the time of Moses when God gave them the Ten Commandments shortly after uh, their release or escape from Egypt. And at that time, then they began to realize that God was special and he was looking after them in a special way. And some of that is reflected in some of the Psalms, but very few, because there was no formal spiritual uh, ceremonies of any kind. The only thing that they had to go on was the Passover supper, which had happened, you know, the night or so before they left Egypt. And if you recall the story, it was all done in haste. 
that was why it contained unleavened bread rather than leavened bread, because it was to be eaten uh, as people in uh, sort of escape mood, in haste, without having time to let the bread rise. So from that, there began a form of understanding that God was looking after this community of people, the Jewish people. And from that, then they began to develop a form of spirituality. But yet the form did not really come into existence. It was done sort of haphazardly, of course with sincerity, but haphazardly because there was no guidance, there was no direction, uh, there was no priesthood. It was Moses alone. And the poor guy was 80 years old, roughly, at that time. And so um, you can understand there probably wasn't a great deal of influence from him uh, immediately. It wasn't until they had spent some time after the Ten Commandments uh, appearance that spirituality began to be taken seriously and the form began to develop. And some of the Psalms uh, will show a little bit of that, but even then, they were written much later, reflecting back on uh, the period of the escape from Egypt. It wasn't really until the time of the monarchy, after, the, after uh, David and Solomon, when the form of Judaism really began to take on a spirituality. And there began a form of of worship services. And many of the Psalms reflect that. Uh, so, and as we go further into or closer into uh, Judaism as it approaches Christianity, the development of the Psalms take on a more personal relationship with Christ than, or rather with God than existed earlier. <coughs> Remember, their idea of who God was was originally patterned after the Egyptian worship of many gods. And their understanding of God was more in the form of the Pharaoh who was looked upon as a god. And Pharaoh was feared because if you didn't obey him, boy, you got zapped. Uh, and in many cases, uh, just put to death because that's the way the Pharaoh wanted. So when you read the Psalms, the early Psalms, that talk about fear of God, that's literally what they meant, fear. Fear of being punished in some severe way, even to the point of death. However, as time went on and their understanding of God developed, more likely after the Babylonian exile at the end of the 6th century BC, did 
the idea of a loving God really developed. And this Psalms will show that. So when you read the early Psalms, and it talks about fear, that's what they really meant. Fear, in the way we think of fear today. Uh, as time went on, as I said, and the idea of a loving God developed, then fear began to be mellowed down into a form of reverence or revering rather than fearing. The next thing that I would really like to talk about is the numbering. And if you ever wanted to get into a real puzzle, this is it. But if you look at the handout that you got at the door this morning, let's go through it briefly. It's not as difficult as it appears. There are 150 Psalms in all Bibles, but they're not all these numbered the same. Psalm 1 through 8 is the same in all Bibles. But at 9 and 10, in the Hebrew Bible, it was split into two. And why was it split into two? If you look at it, it is pretty long. And remember, in the early days, these were written on parchment or scrolls of animal skin. And you only had so much space in animal skin. And therefore, they would have to put it on a separate skin. Simply as that. There was another reason for some of the uh, dividing, I should say, not splitting, I don't like that word, the dividing of uh, the Psalms, and that was uh, not only the length, but it turned into a different subject matter. But that is rare. Most of it was due to the length of the uh, Psalm, and the ability to put it all onto one animal skin or scroll. But from verse uh, Psalm 11 through Psalm 12, 112, so we're talking essentially 100 Psalms, they are numbered pretty much the same. <laughs> With one exception. That dividing of 10 uh, and 9 and 10, there will always be one number difference. Okay? And you'll see that many of the Psalms in your books, or if the Psalms are referred to in other forms of writing, you will have both numbers. And that means that in the Greek and Latin, it will be the lower number, in the Hebrew, it will be the upper number. Now remember that Martin Luther went back and adopted the Hebrew scripture of the Old Testament. So if you have a Protestant Bible, you will have uh, the, you will have the greater number. 
and in the Latin and Greek version, which most Catholic Bibles are, you will have the lower number. Now, I understand, and to confuse the situation a little bit more, if you have a Jerusalem Bible, you might have either, depending on when that Bible was produced. Because lately, I understand that the Jerusalem Bible is adopting the Hebrew numbering system. All right, so I won't belabor the point, but you can see here uh, a little bit of confusing, but in the end, they all come back to the same uh, number or total number of 150 songs. Now, no one's expected to memorize or know, know all of those, but I think if you go through them, you will find some that really appeal to you. And those are psalms that I would encourage you to mark and to try to get to understand what they're really saying. Uh, unfortunately, the translation from uh, Latin into Greek, uh, into English, leaves us a little bit of wondering, you might say, particularly when it comes to personal pronouns. You might have one sentence that will have him two or three times, and you wonder, well, and I mean H-I-M, you know, not H-Y-M-M, uh, but the personal pronoun him is often used to define God, but if you have one that talks about God the Father, and then particularly mankind, you might have him three times in one long sentence, and it could be referencing each one of those. So you got to be careful in understanding that. The other thing you have to understand is that the hymns were written in the form of Jewish poetry. And Jewish poetry did not depend on rhyme like we do, you know. Mary had a little lamb, the feast was white as snow. Everywhere where Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Now, that does not exist in Jewish poetry. Jewish poetry depended on the number of syllables. It depended on uh, comparisons. Uh, it depended on meter, and so forth. If you look particularly in your missiles or the Bible, you will see a number of the Psalms uh, that leave a lot of space at the end of the line. And you wonder, well, why did they leave all that space at the end of the line when they could have put more words there? Well, that is because they're trying to give you the Jewish metering system. And if you went and translated that back, you would see that the first and the second line have some relationship to each other, either in sound, number of syllables, or in comparisons. Yes? What do you mean by Sarah? S-E-L-A-H? I'm sorry. Sarah. 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 Sarah.
Shailo. You mean? What do you mean by the Shailo? No, this is right, right there. Oh. It always comes at the end of some, some lines. Well, frankly, I don't know, but I'll have to look it up and okay. I'll let you know because I'm not sure myself. No, Hala, Hal, H-A-L-L-E-L, means praise. That's where we get hallelujah from. No, no, no. Uh, well, you know, it might might be some form. Right, I won't. I don't know, but, uh, yeah, Hala uh, might not be pronouncing it exactly correctly, but that's, H-A-L-L-E-L -L -E -L is where we get the word hallelujah from. Yeah. Alleluia is actually a misnomer. Many people think it's the Latin version, but it isn't. It's hallelujah, as we often say it. It's sort of a, a English derivative. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay, well, that could be, all right. I'll try to look it up also. Um, but I'm glad you say that they don't know what it means either. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so it doesn't mean that we're the only ones, eh? Uh, but getting back, getting back to the, uh, the speaking, who is speaking, that is a little bit troublesome when you're reading it in English. Uh, but so be careful and try to uh, be aware of this idea of who is speaking. Because it may be Jesus speaking to the Father. Well, Jesus, of course, did not exist uh, as a human being, that is, in Old Testament times. So I'm not so sure that that would be a correct way of saying. But it could be. Uh, and if you're interpreting it more or less as applying to Christian times, then that might be uh, correct, all right? But it's we speaking, we as individuals, or we as the church speaking to the Father. That's very common. Or we as the church speaking to the Lord. Remember, in Old Testament times, of course, there was only the th thinking of one God, uh, and that was the Father. All right. But now, if you're interpreting it in the Christian form, it, we could be speaking to Jesus. Or God could be speaking to us, that is, the body of Christ. And then there is this idea of the psalmist, the person writing this psalm, speaking to the people in general. That's important uh, because it is not listed as one of the speakers, but there, you have to admit that that is there. Okay. That is there. <coughs> any question on that or any other question right now? Don't be afraid to ask questions. 
classifications. So there are several classifications um, within the Psalms. So many that I tried to categorize them here and I got lost. All right. Uh, not because I couldn't identify them, it's just that they got so many and then I was given this uh, similar schedule up here which even looks a little more complicated than mine. Uh, but there are several, but I'm only going to go through a few of them because uh, there's just too many to get into. Uh, laments. These are songs of petition and uh, you've heard me say this before. I sort of call them the gimme prayers. Lord, give me this. Lord, give me that. Give me something else. Uh, don't give me this. Don't give me that. Without any humility of acknowledging your own weaknesses, your own faults or failures. That sort of troubles me when I read those kinds of psalms. But they are there, and they happens to be the very largest category. Then there are psalms of thanksgiving. There are royal psalms. Royal psalms obviously came during the time of the monarchy. And one of the problems with that is uh, because many of the people could not read uh, or write, uh, they had to go by what they were told. And what they were told in the temple pretty much was that the Lord God uh, appointed the kings as someone almost as close as his son. And it was sort of erroneously developed from that point in many ways that uh, the king was like a god and in many ways was almost worshipped. And the both Greek and Roman uh, emperors took on the same idea that they were like gods. The only thing is they didn't act like gods, you know, but they did. They took on this idea and expected their subjects to treat them as such. But the Psalms here, uh, in many ways, were referring to the human king. But now we can take those as prayers and refer that uh, homage to God himself. Then there are seven wisdom psalms. Actually, there's only six numbers here, but there are seven. There are a lot of hymns. Almost the last five of the psalms are almost all hymns of praise. Uh, there are a number of hymns. Now, the reason for all of this is that the Psalms were not intended for personal prayer in Judaism because people couldn't, most of the people could not write. They were used mostly for ceremonies or marches or celebrations and they were written to be announced or sung by designated people. And 
course, copies were made, and that's why we have a number of copies, because they were all part of uh, temple liturgies. The people could not read or write, and so there was no way of passing out uh, a number of booklets or whatever with these in them, because it would have been worthless to the majority of the people. Again, I'm not putting the people down as being stupid or whatever. It is just that that was not uh, part of the culture at that time. Okay. They were not educated or experienced. That doesn't mean that they didn't have the intelligence uh, to pick it up. <laughs> I, I'm going to depart a little bit because I want to talk about uh, the Psalms in the use of our liturgy. Today is a very good example, I think. Um, for those of you who were able to get to church this morning, uh, you've heard in the first reading uh, from the book of Nehemiah, the story where Nehemiah was very downcast and worried about the people uh, who were returning to Babylon and not having a place of worship. And so he, uh, even though he was part of the exiled Jews who were carried off to Babylon, rose in prominence uh, within the kings. And the king, this is now a Persian king because it was after the Persian conquest of Babylon, when they were starting to allow the people to go back to uh, Israel. I question Nehemiah, why was he so downcast? Why was he uh, so depressed? So Nehemiah tells him that the people that were going back to, to Israel had no temple to worship, and they had no leadership, they didn't have the materials or or the wherewithal to rebuild the temple. And so the king, this is Artaxerxes, one of the Persian, third Persian king after Cyrus and Darius, uh, that was very generous and said, well, what do you need? And so Nehemiah listed a number of things that were needed and the, the king uh, helped him to get going and gave him time to go back to Israel and help rebuild the temple and then with the idea that he would uh, return to Babylon. Uh, and when you read the corresponding responsorial psalm for today, it is the psalm uh, song in Babylon, uh, 136, I believe it is. I have a hard time remembering all the numbers. Thank, thank you. Okay, there we get the number one, 
one number off, right? Okay. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat mourning and weeping when we remembered Zion. On the poplars of that land, we hung up our harps. There our captors asked us for the words of the song. See, now this is written after the return, but is remembrance of what was there. Remember, the, the captives asked the Israelites to sing, to sing the songs of Zion. And then when you get to Psalm 126, I believe it is, how could we possibly sing something like that? Okay. Uh, but it goes on very closely related. So in our liturgies, the psalm generally reflects something that was said in the first reading. And so they're very closely connected. Now, when you go to the gospel for today, it is not related to anything in Babylon, but it is uh, another way of relating back because it's where uh, one, someone following Jesus said, I will follow you anywhere, wherever you go, wherever you stay. And Jesus says, the foxes have dens and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now you might think, well, that's a, kind of a dumb statement, you know, in reference to this nice statement that he's, this person made, I will follow you anywhere. But if you connect the two, and remember the people in Israel knew these Psalms backwards and forwards, and all you had to do is mention a few words and they would understand. This Psalm is referring to the fact of preparedness. God prepares his followers and keeps them safe, just like he has given food to the uh, birds of the sky and given them places to nest. So you see, there is a connection there uh, that makes sense. So even Jesus knew the Psalms. And of course, the Psalm that we know best that Jesus cried out was from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he's not crying to God because of his problems. <clears throat> in a, but in a way, he is, of course, he's human being. But he's referring back to Psalm 22, which sort of details, you might say, the whole crucifixion scene. But then if you go to part B of Psalm 22, it is a victory psalm that really is in reference to the resurrection. So there's a great connection there. And it's like Jesus saying from the cross, look, fellas, this was already predicted in the Psalms hundreds of years ago, what you are doing to me. But, if you look at the end of that psalm, you'll see that I'm going to win in the long run. Let's get the connection. So, now, there's not that in every psalm. Yes? How close to the pinpoint of the date that Psalm 22 was written? 
can't. No. There's uh stuff <laughs> just asked how closely can we tell the date of when a psalm was written. Unfortunately, we have no way of knowing. There are no records to give us any idea. We can tell approximately in what period of time, but we can't tell uh, for sure any specific date. And that, that's unfortunate because dates in those days were not important because there were no calendars that were common to everybody. You know? Today, everybody in the world uses the same calendar, except for, you know, Jewish people have their own special calendar and others have that too, but it's for religious purposes only. For all legal and daily transactions worldwide, we use the same calendar. Yes, Doris? Well, that's true. Now, again, that goes back to the fact that David and his son Solomon were extremely wise people. And in many cases, it was they who um, recommended the writing down of Jewish histories for the first time. Prior to that, there was no written Jewish histories. So it was either David or Solomon. And they were considered extremely wise people. Uh, and they may have influenced a number of the writings, but they did not write them. The reason that they are given credit for them is because it was a way of hanging on a given writing to a already known, well-respected person. And that is true throughout all of Old Testament writings. There's very few of them that are actually, uh, that have, can be identified with a given person. And even in the New Testament, uh, it's unlikely that Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually wrote their own Gospels. Followers probably with far more education and writing skills, wrote them down. Now, obviously, Matthew, Mark, and Luke influenced and perhaps gave them all of the material to write, but they themselves, uh, it's unlikely that they wrote them. Now, Paul is a different thing. Paul actually did write his. In fact, in one of his letters, he actually says that he took the pen in hand and actually uh, wrote it, which was unusual because, remember, scribes was a, a very important role in that society at that time. Yeah. In fact, right up until, uh, see, the third or fourteenth century, the scribe was a very highly paid individual, and it was a very prominent and well-respected craft. Once the printing press came in, uh, that declined rapidly. 
And if you read, want to read a very, very interesting historical novel, historical novel, I stress, read Gutenberg's Apprentice. It's a fairly recent book out, and it's about the uh, printing press and what Gutenberg went through to uh, get it started. The first thing that he published was the Bible. And so you have a number of Gutenberg Bibles. I saw one of the originals that he produced in the Library of Congress, a very, very beautiful Bible. And he only produced a few of them uh, because they were quite long. And he did a number of other things, but uh, the whole story of how he got started uh, against the church, no less, and against all of the scribes who had a union of their own. Uh, so, but that's getting way off the subject. Uh, yeah. Yes. 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 Can we tie those down? Yes. You can tie tie that down fairly well. Uh, and of course that's what Pope Gregory the thirteenth did when he went had his people go back and try to relate the times that the kings existed with other events. And he produced the Gregorian calendar, which is worldwide used today. Prior to that, we had the Julian calendar, which Julius Caesar produced back in the around 63 BC, but it was not accepted outside of the Roman uh, Empire. And it was used up until the Gregorian calendar was used and replaced it. But even that, the Gregorian calendar is off about seven years in smaller events. So we say that Christ was born in year one. Well, technically that was not true because we know that Julius Caesar died in the year 4 BC and uh, no, not Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, was died in the year 4 BC, and it was Augustus Caesar who called for the, you know, the whole idea of the Jewish people going back to their original ancestry beginnings, and that's why Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, and Joseph went to Bethlehem, etc., etc. Yeah. So we know that the Gregorian calendar is up by up to seven years for smaller events. Yeah. All right, let's let's try here. Lord, the king finds joy in your power. In your victory, how greatly he rejoices. You have granted him his heart's desire. You did not refuse the prayer of his lips. For you welcome him with goodly blessings. 
he placed on his head a crown of pure gold. Now, this is we, someone, the psalmist in this case, talking to the Lord about the king. And it is a psalm of thanksgiving and assurances for the king. But if you go to Psalm 20, these are companions. Psalm 20 is talking uh, about something that was um, received by the king. And they're giving credit to the Lord. The Lord answered you in time of distress. The The name of the God of Jacob defend you. May God send you your help from the temple. From Zion be your support. May God remember you in every offering. Your every offering. Graciously accept your holocaust. Great what is, grant what is in your heart. Fulfill your every plan. And this is, may God do this. All right. And so the king did receive these things. And so Psalm 21 is the companion. It is the thanksgiving for the success of what happened in 20. So in many of these are our relationships. All right. You have the same thing in Psalms 42 and 43. And in 62 and 63, there are relationships. So you have to kind of read the first one to understand the second one. The righteous Israelite. It says a Psalm of David. Discard or just dismiss that because that has very little bearing on it. Lord, who may abide in your tent? Now, the term tent was used for worship purposes. And it doesn't always mean a tent for housing or other purposes. Remember from the time uh, that the people escaped from Egypt, to the time that they came back into the promised land, roughly 40 years, they were constantly on the go. Well, almost. Uh, And so they lived in tents. But there's a whole story in the first book of Kings and also um, in Exodus where a tent was set up, especially in the last part of the book of Exodus, the whole idea of the tabernacle. It was a glorified tent. And so the term tent in prayers, in the Psalms, generally takes on the idea of the meeting tent, which was used as a temporary uh, temple. Who shall abide in your tent? or live in your temple. Who may dwell on your holy mountain? That would have been Zion. Whoever walks without blame, doing what is right, speaking truth from the heart. This is one of the 
ideas of a wisdom song. Okay, it is giving you instruction in something that is telling you that those people who do these things will eventually live with God in heaven. That's what the end result is in a Christian sense. So it's saying, whoever walks without blame, dropping down, whoever does not slander, whoever disdains the wicked, who keeps an oath despite the cost, whoever acts like this, etc., etc., means that those people who do what is right will live eventually with God in heaven. Uh, let's go to Psalm 20. I think I started to read some of that. It is a psalm of trust. And eventually, a psalm of success. The Lord answer you in time. May the Lord answer you in time of distress. The name of the Lord, uh, the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May God send you help from the temple. From Zion be your support. Now, if you look at that, each of those first two lines and each two lines after that are a complete statement and a complete sentence. This is an indication of Jewish poetry, and it is something that is called a distich or a tristic, if there were three lines. Let's go back. The Lord answer you in time of distress. The name of the God of Jacob defend you. May God send you help from the temple, from Zion, which is on, Mount, on the, is the temple, be your support. May God remember your every offering, graciously accept your holocaust. Sometimes you have to add in uh, a word like and or so or but or something of that kind to make it more meaningful in your own language. And don't be afraid to do that. May he send, or may we shout for joy at your victory and raise the banners in the name of our God. The Lord grant your every prayer. Sin directs the heart of the wicked. How many of you have that? Yeah. All right, that's the more up-to-date one. This one is quite old. Let me let me use that. It's the same, of course, psalm, but again, the language is a little different. That's what bothers me when somebody, and this is very common in Protestant denominations, when they say every word of the Bible is exact and it's just what God said. Well we can see that that's not true, you know, right here. And I'm saying that, yes, the Bible is the word of God, but it's the message that counts, not the individual words in which that message was delivered. So be very careful 
we do not, we as Catholics do not believe that the Bible was written by, you know, the Father or Jesus Christ. It was written by mankind and it was changed to suit the wording of today. If you went back and looked at the Jefferson Bible produced by Thomas Jefferson, but don't get that because it, it, uh, he cut out other things that he didn't like. Uh, somebody gave me a very, very expensive, beautiful, leather-bound, gold edging of the Jefferson Bible, thinking they were doing me a great gift, you know, and I kind of tossed it away, you know, because it's interesting, because what he has there is good, but it's only what he thought was good. What he didn't like, he tossed out. All right, let's go back to Psalm 36. Again, this is a psalm of a person acknowledging his sin, which is rare in the whole book of Psalms. There are only seven psalms in the whole 150 that are classified as psalms of petition or begging forgiveness. All right. I'll go to another one in a few minutes. Sin directs the heart of the wicked. Their eyes are closed to the fear of God, for they live with the delusion that their guilt will not be known and hated. Now that was a common trait in early Judaism, even after the temple was built. The whole idea and this came because the rulers, the Jewish rulers, which Christ condemned over and over, lorded over the people, and the people being uneducated followed them, thought that God was in the temple. Oh, God was in the temple and they worshipped him and so forth. But right outside the temple, it didn't make any difference. You could do whatever you wanted because God was in the temple, not outside. So that idea of God being all over the part of everything and living within us did not exist at that time. And this kind of shows that. With Christ himself, yes. Yeah. But it gradually began to open the minds of hearts even before that. And when we get into studying the book of Sirach and the Book of Wisdom, you'll see that there's a great deal in there. But those came in the 2nd and 3rd century BC, kind of late in pre-Christian Judaism. Empty and false are the words of their mouth. They have ceased to be wise and do good. In their beds they hatch plots. They set out on a wicked way. They do not reject evil. Now, in most of your Bibles, can you see that some of the lines are very short and there's a lot of empty space afterwards? All right. That is because we're following the Jewish poetry form and trying to translate it directly. All right. <clears throat> Let's go to Psalm 51.
this psalm is called the Great Miserere, the great, greatest of all the psalms of petition, that is, begging forgiveness. <clears throat> and it is one that could be used uh, in the place of your confessional psalm. I confess to Almighty God, you know, and so forth. Um, have mercy on me, O God, in your goodness. In your abundant compassion, blot out my offense. Wash away all my guilt from my sin, cleanse me. For I know my offense. My sin is be always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned. I have done such evil in your sight that you are, <clears throat> are just in your sentence and blameless when you condemn. Truly, I was born guilty. A sinner, even my mother conceived me, as my mother conceived me. And still you insist on sincerity of heart. In my inmost being, teach me wisdom. Cleanse me with the hyssop, that I may be pure. And wash me, make me whiter than snow. Now, this is not something that you would recite in the confessional after the priest, the priest would... <coughs> priest would think you were a little bit strange, you know. But as a form of personal prayer, particularly after you've done something that you wished you hadn't. I have a bad habit of kind of speaking out sometimes uh, and saying things that I wished I had. Not, not vulgar language, but, you know, things that just probably would have been better left unsaid. And then I, I regret it afterwards, you know. So I say this song here. Yeah, with sincerity. It's a little long, so I won't go into it. Now, many books will say that this was attributed to the, David again uh, after his uh, little episode with Bathsheba. Well, no, I don't think so. Because if you go to the last stanza on that, it says, uh, make Zion prosper in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Well, if David wrote this, the walls of Jerusalem had not been destroyed. So this would not really apply uh, to have been written by David. Okay. And there's a few little things in many of these Psalms that give you an indication of when or approximately when they were written. But there is no uh, specific way of taking them. All right, here's another one, Psalm 53. Fools say in their heart, there is no God. Their deeds are loathsome and corrupt. Not one does what is right. Boy, the person that perpetrated that thing in Las Vegas Sunday night, uh, that kind of applies right there. God looks down from heaven upon the human race to see if anyone is wise, even if anyone seeks God. All have gone astray. All alike are perverse. Not one does what is right, not even one. Well, I'm not so sure that that is true.
true either, but nevertheless. So you see, there's such a wide variety of prayers here, but you have to sort of tailor-make them to fit yourself in your understanding. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, if you go to Psalm 14, I'm picking out Psalms that I particularly like. It's uh, very much like the one we just read. It's the same kind of thing. Fools say in their hearts, there is no God. Their deeds are loathsome and corrupt, not one. So you'll see that there are a lot of duplications. Uh, let me also remind you or say that there are psalms in other books of the Bible, but they are not designated as such. But we can tell that many of them were written and were independent of the overall book in which they are presented. Let me give you an example. In Ephesians, this is Paul's letter to the Ephesians in Christian writing, uh, there is a prayer that is in uh, chapter 1, verse 3 to 11 or 12, that is considered a separate prayer that was there and popular even before Paul incorporated. Whether he wrote it or somebody else wrote it, we have no way of knowing. But at least Paul incorporated that into his teaching in the book of Ephesians and I'm happy that he did because it fits very well. Also, he did that again in Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 6 to 11. Uh, and uh, I can't recite them offhand. We could go to that. But nevertheless, those are forms of poems, and they were written in poetic form, in Jewish format, <coughs> prior to writing book of uh, Philippians or, or the letter to the Philippians or the letter to the Ephesians. And that is common throughout. There are other psalms that are repeated elsewhere. You'll find a, a number of them in the first book of Samuel. And then when you go to the book of Samuel or to some of the other books and you hear what is written, you'll wonder, well, see, I, I read that or heard that somewhere else. And so don't be alarmed because that is very common. The Psalms were used in other uh, books of both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, <clears throat> and it's just an indication that they were very popular at all times. The fact that Jesus was able to quote the Psalms um, shows that he knew them very well and could use them and apply them uh, to his teachings as well.
anyone else have a psalm that they are concerned about? Well, what is your thinking? What what do you feel that you are getting out of reading the Psalms? Have any of you been in the habit of reading them in the past? Ms. Ray Ray? So that wasn't what you were doing. No. No. That's right. He's he's given credit because that was a very common thing to do. Yeah. And many writings uh, are given credit to someone else because that's the only way they would have of getting them out and getting them published and read. Because of a, a lone writer, regardless of how talented he or she was, and God forbid, in those days, uh, regardless of how talented or gifted a person was, if he was unknown, he would have no way of getting his material out and read and published. So he attributes it to someone else. You see, the whole idea of copyright didn't exist. The whole idea of writing uh, for, for money didn't exist because there wasn't enough people to buy them. And the reproduction process made it impossible. Well, no, they were used for other kinds of ceremonies. Remember that Jewish people prior to the time of Christ uh, celebrated a lot of things. You know, the harvest was one of the biggest of their... Uh, and so they would produce psalms for those things too, mostly hymns. There was also a lot of patriotic psalms that glorified Zion. <laughs> now let me talk a little bit about Zion. Zion was originally just a hill uh, in the vicinity of where Jerusalem is today. If, if I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's got a rather interesting geography or geographic history. Remember, Jerusalem was historically always thought about as the same spot on which Abraham was about to slay his son Isaac. And he was prevented from doing so. All right. It was also historically thought of as the spot where Jesus ascended into heaven. Yeah. It was always thought of, in a historical way, as the same rock upon which Mohammed ascended into heaven. So you have all of those, and of course that's the reason why Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all claim the same spot as their most sacred spots. All right? Let me give you a little, and I don't pretend to be any Rembrandt here, but 
if you go from the Mediterranean Sea and you go eastward, you are going essentially down from Tel Aviv down through a valley and then back up to a large plateau. This plateau was made up of seven hills. One of the, those hills was named Zion. And then the geography goes even further down to the Dead Sea and the River Jordan goes through there. And Jericho is right here. So this is Jerusalem. This is where the temple was built. Now, when you go to Jerusalem today, that's a little difficult to see because so much of this has been built on and, you know, been leveled off and smoothed off and so forth and so on. And then, of course, Jerusalem has been destroyed two or three times. So in those days, they didn't clear everything with bulldozers. They just built on top. And so you just, you know, this is not quite as uh, sharp when you look at it from a distance. But you, have you ever noticed in Jewish writing, they will be, for example, the apostles will be up here in Galilee somewhere, and they'll say, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now, we always say, you know, we're going down to Los Angeles because it's south of here. Or we're going up to Portland. There, Jerusalem was always designated as up. Okay. And Zion was just one of the hills. But it was the sacred hill on which Isaac was to be slaughtered by Abraham. But it, of course that was prevented as you know. It has gone through a number of understandings uh, good and bad. It was always looked upon as home. This was the home of Judaism. And of course in Christian times that's where Jesus walked and lived, so forth, although he really came from Nazareth, which is up in Galilee, about 85 miles distance from Galilee, from Nazareth down to Jerusalem, all right? And this Jordan River is actually a little closer proximity, all right? So when they would come down from, Naz from Nazareth, or, or Galilee to Jerusalem, they had to go through Samaria. And that was always forbidden because the Samaritans were descendants of the Assyrians back in the 8th century BC. And when the Assyrians captured the people in Samaria here, they carted them off as slaves or indentured servants and replaced them with all the 
riffraff, the ne'er-do-goods, the jailbirds, etc., etc. And that is why the Samaritans were always disliked by the pure Jews down here. A lot of people don't understand that. Why did Jesus, not Jesus, but the people of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus so disliked the Samaritans? And that is because they were only half-Jews. They tried to assimilate, they tried to uh, become more like the local people. You know, we're talking about 700 years. You would think by that time they would have forgotten uh, the whole idea of forgive and forget was not part of Jewish history. Okay, so I don't know. Does that give you some idea? Now, Zion has gone through an idea of faith. It's become very patriotic. It lost its power and importance after 70 AD when Jerusalem uh, and all of Israel was pretty much destroyed by the Romans. Judaism in itself was in disarray and became somewhat dismantled for a couple hundred years. But then <clears throat> after the fourth century AD, it began a, a revival created by, um, I never can pronounce his name, I won't try it right now. Uh, anyways, the guy that started writing down the Talmud. Okay. The Talmud is the most holy book next to the Quran. I mean, next to the Torah. I'm sorry. God forbid the Quran. But nowadays, most Jewish people go by the Talmud rather than uh, the first five books or the Torah, because the Torah is much too uh, strong and gives directives, whereas the Talmud gives a, is a little more lenient. That's where my Jewish friend used to say, this is not pork, this is bacon and ham. Uh, okay. All right. What else can I tell you about the Psalms? Yes, Joe? Well, I hate to let you go. It's a little early. Did you get something out of this? It's important that you really become friendly and understanding of the Psalms because they can do so much good. They can be a great uh, supplement to your prayer life. Let me give you one example. This is the daily liturgy of the hours. It is made up, I would say, approximately of 65% of the Psalms. Right. It has a daily reading uh, that repeats every four weeks. But then it has special, uh, for example, today is October the 4th, the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. It has a little bit about St. Francis in here, and if there is a special Mass in his honor, that would be in here also. Like the other day, there was the Feast of the Guardian Angels. There was a whole Mass for the Guardian Angels that is in here as well. But 
this can be used as a prayer base. Uh, I pray out of this, well, I'm not trying to polish my halo here, but uh, three times a day because it, it becomes part of my, my whole routine in my life. And I feel I've been doing this for 40 or 50 years. And I feel like I'm lost if I can't. I take this on vacations and when I'm traveling uh, because it's part of my life. It takes maybe 15, 20 minutes at most uh, each of those three times. But that's less than an hour. Christ said, can't you wait and pray with me for at least one hour? That's where our holy hour comes from that phrase. Okay. Uh, so I would suggest and recommend that you look into getting this. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, uh, publications of that kind and a lot of help. So there's no excuse for you're not really understanding. But I do recommend the prayer, the uh, Psalms being what? Please, please, your attention. Yeah. I do recommend the Psalms very highly. I want to talk just a briefly about next week we will be getting into Proverbs. Now, if you think the Psalms are a little difficult, uh, Proverbs are even more so simply because they were all written in the form of Jewish poetry. And they are all instructive. Very few of the Psalms talk about God, but the the uh, intention is that they will lead you to God, and I recommend that they do. <clears throat> if you read them, and I recommend that you read all of the Psalms, there are not that many. I mean Proverbs. I'm sorry. I'm getting rid. Yes, Proverbs. Thank you. Uh, there's not that many. Um, they might cover 30 pages, but they're interesting. And they're all educational. They're instructive. And they were written originally in the form of the king's uh, servants teaching the oldest prince. That is where they began as a tool for education. But as other people became more educated, Proverbs became far more important to the educated people, <clears throat> and particularly the young. So that is what we should look at and try to understand, that it is training for the young people if you go to the first chapter of the book of Daniel and just read that, you'll see the idea of a couple, the three young men that accompanied Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, are taken into custody, you might say, and treated very well because they were being trained to serve the king. This is a very common way of doing things at the time. 
and this was second century. Um, it was written in the second century, but it takes place in the sixth century BC. But that is where the whole idea of the Proverbs being studied by not only people within the household of the kings, but of all educated people. And it is a means of prayer as well. So that's what we will be talking about next week. And uh, I hope you get something out of that. After that, we will be spending two weeks on Sirach, two meetings, that is, two meetings on Sirach and probably two meetings on the Book of Wisdom because they are much longer and there's far more in them that I think of interest and that will be helpful to us. Any questions or comments today? Let us end with a prayer. Then. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, help us, Lord, as we continue our study of the wisdom books. Help us to really understand what it is you mean by wisdom for us. It is a virtue highly in line with love itself. It is more than education. It is more than smart or intelligence itself. And therefore, it is very close to you. We know that. Help us to understand and get involved in studying the pursuit of wisdom. So we thank you for this time together. <coughs> We thank you and praise you on all things, Jesus' name.